Shalom, my dear brethren and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. It certainly is a joy to be here with you again and we bring with us the loving fraternal greetings from your brethren and sisters that meet at Kersbrook. Especially was I asked to pass on the, the regards of Brother John and Sister Jewel Lunn and also from the Tea Tree Gully Ecclesia from Brother Norm and Sister Lorraine who I believe were with you only some months ago. We're going to consider, brothers and sisters, over this weekend, the Lord's Prayer. Something which is very familiar to all of us. In fact, we'd say it probably is the most familiar section of the Word of God. Not just to us, but the whole human race. Because whether a person even reads their Bible or attends church, they know what the Lord's Prayer is. It is a prayer which is often voiced by people, of course, who do not understand the Word of Truth. I understand that Parliament for instance, still begins with the reading of the Lord's Prayer. Just recently in Adelaide they had a car race, a big car race which took over the city and in listening to the beginnings of that, the uh, priest blessed that race and amongst the blessing which he gave he recited the words of the Lord's Prayer. What benefit that had and what relationship to a car race nobody knows but it is one that people are very familiar with and certainly, of course, is familiar, with it, familiar to us as the sons and daughters of the living God. But that familiarity, brethren and sisters, often breeds complacency. We quote it so often and we hear it quoted so often that we don't give a lot of thought to what it's actually saying. And what we want to do over this weekend is to have a very close look at the words of the Lord's Prayer. It's not the prayer itself as such that we're going to be looking at, but at the doctrines of that prayer. And we were so impressed in looking at this, breaking this uh, prayer up and looking at the individual sections of it, that um, we of course uh, subtitled our studies that um, it highlights the point of the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, that no man spake like this man. But there is within the words of the Lord's Prayer, brethren and sisters, every major doctrine that we need to understand that we might have salvation. Every major doctrine, for instance, that may be mentioned in the Birmingham amended statement of faith is covered by the words of the Lord Jesus Christ in this prayer. And as we're going to see, as the sons and daughters of the living God, as those who are the brethren of Christ, it is a prayer designed for us. It has no bearing whatsoever on the world, it has only a bearing on those who are the sons of God. That is why it starts with the words, Our Father. And we're going to see, brethren and sisters, the significance of that in a moment. Now what we've done, that we're going to use over this weekend, is we have divided up the, uh, the prayer into what we would say are ten parts. Of course, firstly we're going to be introduced this afternoon to the term, Our Father. Within that, of course, there is enough information for us to continue the whole weekend, but we will include that in our studies uh, this afternoon. Which art in heaven? We're going to see that it is not simply a location, brethren and sisters. It's not just a location. There is a lot more involved scripturally to what the word heaven is referring to. Hallowed be thy name. A subject that, of course, we love so much, and that is a contemplation of the name of Almighty God. In talking to Brother Norm, I understand he touched on areas of that when he was here with you earlier this year. And so he's laid something of a foundation for us as we consider what is involved in the name of God. What does it actually mean to hallow it? 
Of course the prayer then continues with thy kingdom come. And even in that term alone, brethren and sisters, we're going to see that it takes us right through scripture and it deals not simply with a kingdom to come, but if we take the word kingdom, it reminds us of so many of the principles in the past as well as in the future. And certainly when it says thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and this is probably one of those areas that surprised me, as a speaker who has often used the Lord's Prayer in our lectures to prove that the kingdom of God is on earth, but in fact those terms obviously don't relate to the kingdom of God on earth at all. And because during the kingdom age, when the mortalities are being taught the truth, it will certainly, the will of God will not be done as it is in heaven. That will be beyond the millennium, as we will see. So the, the, the prayer takes us beyond, of course, the return of Christ right through until the time of the all and in all. The prayer continues with give us this day our daily bread. And we're going to see that that, of course, can apply uh, in two particular areas. In the natural bread, which we receive, and we do receive, brethren and sisters, although we lose sight of it in today's world, that we would not have it if God did not provide it. But then secondly, we'll see that it has a special relationship, of course, to the bread which comes from heaven. Then we continue with the prayer that it, we, are, we ask that we might be forgiven of our debts. And accompanied with that, the explanation comes, and it's so important to keep those two phrases together, as we forgive our debtors. We often talk, brethren and sisters, and there is discussion on the principles concerning forgiveness and the terms of forgiveness. And often a statement is made, something like, well, it's, it is, uh, forgiveness to us is unconditional. It's anything but unconditional, brethren and sisters, as we're going to see. And certainly one of the conditions is that we forgive our brethren and sisters. And, says the prayer, if we can't do that, then we cannot receive forgiveness from God. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And probably of the whole um, prayer, I found that the most fascinating. To come to grips with what that is actually talking about when we ask God to lead us not into temptation. Given the principle, of course, that we know scripturally, temptation, or trial as it is, is vitally important for our salvation. Why then would we ask him not to take us into trial when we cannot be saved without trial from God? And we'll see why that is put that way in the prayer. And of course, deliver us from evil becomes the answer to the whole thing. No matter what circumstances we find ourselves in, as those in Christ, God will give us the answer and the way that we can come out of the problem we're in and ultimately, hopefully, to receive life eternal. Now, the last phrase, brethren and sisters, which is not included in the Luke record, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, is what they call a doxology. It's just simply an addition to the prayer. It's not in any of the ancient manuscripts, but it certainly is appropriate to the prayer. It is certainly appropriate to the prayer and very beautifully brings it to a conclusion by focusing our minds back on Almighty God. But it has been added, it's suggested by Jewish influence, which doesn't in any end any comment with a negative. So that even the last verse of the Old Testament, which ends on a negative note, is changed in the Jewish Bible to include a blessing. And so they, in their, all their writings, you will find that they never end with a curse, they end with a blessing. And they find, of course, these terms negative deliver us from evil. And so they add this doxology to that, in order to, uh, to make it positive. 
but it's a very beautiful statement in itself. It is a summary, I suppose, brethren and sisters, of the prayer, but certainly takes our, our minds back to the opening comments in which all glory is given to God. So we won't actually be dealing with that section, the doxology, we will, uh, uh, but, except in passing, of course, and making some comment of the, uh, concerning the beauty of it. So we begin our look at this wonderful prayer. And it begins, of course, with the words, Our Father. And the emphasis there, brethren and sisters, is on the word, Our. Because, brethren and sisters, it's very, very important that we understand what that means. It has a very personal meaning to you and I. I'm sure, brethren and sisters, that when, particularly in a meeting, a chairman, a presiding brother, begins with the Lord's Prayer and says, Our Father, which art in heaven, that our minds would automatically think he is praying on behalf of us all. And therefore there is the plural hour. That is not what that's talking about. The word hour, brethren and sisters, is inserted there by none less than the Lord Jesus Christ himself and it's an invitation to share with him his Father. God, in the sense of course of his Son, is not our Father. But when we become the brethren of Christ, we become sons and daughters of God and he becomes our Father. And we must, brethren and sisters, separate the word our here in the beginning of this, this uh, prayer to the use throughout the rest of the prayer. Because you see the prayer uses our several times but it is give us our daily bread. That is us communally as a group. Forgive us of our debts. That's us communally as our, as our group. But our Father, brethren and sisters, is not communally as a group. It is as a group in company with the Lord Jesus Christ sharing the same Father. And so it has a lot of power in this word our. And I believe, brethren and sisters, that is why Luke doesn't record the word our Father. Although it's in the authorised version, in the Greek, the word our is missing uh, from that prayer. To remind us, brethren and sisters, that it is a prayer that each of us can use to the Father in heaven. But it's Matthew's record that reminds us that he is our Father and only because we are in Christ. Now we can prove that, of course, from some beautiful quotations that we find in the New Testament. The classic, of course, is the words of the Lord Jesus Christ to his disciples when he said, I go to my, he said, go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father. That is exactly the context, brethren and sisters, of the Lord's Prayer. He is not just the Father, he is our Father, because in fact we have been invited by the Lord Jesus Christ to share him. In the first of John chapter 3 and verse 1, it's put again so beautifully, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Now already, brethren and sisters, it should be dawning on us, therefore, the, the immense privilege of being able to say our Father. No one can say that like the ecclesia of God. Oh, they can voice the word, but it means nothing, brethren and sisters, outside the ecclesia of God. He is our Father. And here are the verses that tell us that. John 14 and verse 6. Jesus says to them, I am the way, the truth and the life and no man comes unto the Father but by me. 
and this is a prayer addressed to the Father. If we want it to be to approach unto the Father, therefore, brethren and sisters, it can only be through the Lord Jesus Christ. Hence, it begins with our Father which art in heaven. And then in Matthew 11 and verse 27, all such beautiful verses, when we consider them in the context, brethren and sisters, of the privilege that we have in Christ Jesus. No man knoweth the Son but the Father, neither knoweth any man the Father, save the Son, and, and here's where our comes into it, and he to whomsoever God will reveal him. And we are amongst, brothers and sisters, that privileged people who have been introduced to the Heavenly Father and are identified with him through the, uh, uh, through the work of his dear Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and his death and his resurrection. And so we look at that phrase, our Father, a little differently now. But it's not, as we said, like the rest of the prayer, which talks communally of the brethren of Christ. It's a verse which invites us to stand aside the Lord Jesus Christ and to echo his words to the disciples, our Father. But of course the word Father itself, again, is a very important statement. Because you see, when we look at that subject, it takes us right through the scriptures because Father, of course, introduces us in the Old Testament or rather by Paul in the New Testament but certainly through the Old Testament that God is the Father of all. But to us there is one God, the Father of whom are all things and we in him. All things are of the Father. He is the creator of the heavens and the earth. Therefore, all belongs to him. And in that sense, he is the father of all. But of course he was especially the father to Israel. And remember that was the, the uh, comment that was made in Exodus chapter 4. Thus saith Yahweh, Israel is my son, even my firstborn son. And so he was their national son, their, God's first national son. So he was a father to Israel. But of course in the context of what we're talking about he is a loving father to us. Now let's have a look at some of these quotations we have here. In Psalm 103 and verses 1 to 13, we have words which highlight, brethren and sisters, the position that we have because being the children of God, he bestows a special love upon us. We can talk of the love of God, brethren and sisters, being extended to all, whether they understand the truth or whether they don't whether they be pagan, heathen or anything else, he provides good things for them from life. But there is a special sense in which the love of God is seen for those who are his children. And of course it starts in verse 1, so similar to the Lord's Prayer here. Bless Yahweh, O my soul, and all they that are with me, bless his holy name. He goes on to talk about the benefits that are given to all of his children and finally goes through into uh, verse, uh, we'll pick it up perhaps from uh, verse 10. He hath not dealt with us after our sins nor rewarded us according to our iniquities for as the heaven is high above the earth so great is his mercy toward them that fear him and as far as the east is from the west so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Like a father pitieth his children, so Yahweh pitieth them that fear him. It has to be the context again, brethren and sisters, of the saints. Uh, 
not of the whole world, because this are a class who have forgiveness of sins. And that can only apply to those, of course, in Christ. And so he loves his children. That's what a father does. A father, of course, on occasions chastens his children. And we're going to see that this becomes the answer to the latter portion of the prayer because it comes back to this thought when later on we are told that we are that um, uh, the comments concerning our chastisement or our proving in the word temptation. And so we pick up just one of the many times where this subject is dealt with in Hebrews chapter 12. And again highlights, brethren and sisters, that it is because of the love of God that in treating us as children, he is prepared to discipline us. And so from chapter 12, and verses 5 to 9. You Have you forgotten the exhortation which speaks unto you as unto children? We keep coming back to that point. Our Father, which speaketh unto you as children, my son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If you endure chastening... God dealeth with you as sons, for what son is he whom the Father chastiseth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof we are all partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Now we often like to use that word illegitimate, but it's a strong word in the Greek for that very reason. To make the point, brethren and sisters, of the blessing that we have in Christ. We are not illegitimate, we are the sons of God. It all comes back as to that opening phrase, our Father which art in heaven. We, and he expects, of course, the characters, his character to be in his children. We're going to consider in a moment as we look at the name of God that the name of God, of course, is his character. And just as there is in children the characteristics of their father, so there should be, brethren and sisters, in us the characteristics of our father. And that last quotation there, brethren and sisters, is a beautiful quotation to emphasise this in a way that we probably haven't even uh, seen before. But it is so powerful that Peter says in chapter 1 verse 4, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these we might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Now I'm sure when we read that, our mind immediately goes to immortality and the kingdom age and beyond. It has nothing to do with that, brethren and sisters. This is the word nature used in the sense that we would use it in our life, where someone would say to me, oh, you have your father's nature. Or we'd say to a person, you have a nice nature. Or perhaps they even make the comment that person hasn't got a very nice nature. They're not talking physically. They're talking of a characteristic of that person. And that's what Paul, Peter is talking about. We have to manifest the characteristics of our Father. We, brothers and sisters, and it elevates us so much, doesn't it? You can imagine in listening to two different words. I say to you, we should manifest the Father. That's a point, fair enough. What if I said to you, we've got to develop divine nature? It lifts that whole subject up, doesn't it, brothers and sisters? We have to be like God. Now I've got a few comments there in regard to that. Bullinger very beautifully says it is a nature as generated. Not a nature we are born with, a nature which is generated. Thayer says that it's a mode of feeling and acting which by long habit has now become our nature. And you know we can do that, brethren and sisters. If someone is critical of us 
of a certain characteristic we have in our nature, we can change it, brothers and sisters. That's what the Word is supposed to do. And the Word has worked on the old Graham Wigsell, or whoever we might be, and developed godliness, hopefully, which is the divine nature. This is beautifully brought out in a couple of writings from Brother Thomas and this is where we got the idea, if you like, from when we were doing Faith in the Last Days many years ago. Page 206. The truth develops in us a nature essentially diverse from the nature that is common to all that are ignorant of the truth. That's his comment on 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. That it, we are to develop a character and the character, of course, is godliness. Elpis Israel, page 52, he quotes again 2 Peter 1 verse 4 and says that this is talking about the image of God in a man's character, not physically, in our character. And finally, in Eureka 1 verse 103, again quoting 2 Peter 1 verse 4, that it refers to the moral manifestation of the Father in this mortal state. We're going to see again, as I said, that comes out, particularly when we talk of the name of God and how that must be inculcated into our life. Because in another term from the New Testament, we are surnamed by the name of God. And it all has, in fact, that same idea that we are to manifest the characteristics of our Father. The new glasses. I have trouble looking over top of them, so I've got these little thin things, but... Perhaps it's the size of my head, it doesn't hold them on. Um, it, so we move on in the prayer and we come to the phrase, Our Father in heaven. And as we said in our open comment, that term, brethren and sisters, heaven, is a reference to the immeasurable greatness of Almighty God. It's not just a locality. When we tell our children that God in heaven sees all things, when I suppose we hear the prayer, Our Father which art in heaven, our mind of course immediately goes to the heavens. But there's a lot more involved in that phrase, brethren and sisters, than simply that. It's not a location. In fact, we have again scriptures which explain that very beautifully for us. In the second of Chronicles chapter 6 verse 18, Will God in every deed dwell with men on the earth? Behold the heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. How much this house which I have built. So Solomon says that even the heavens can't contain God. So when we say in heaven, we're not just talking of a locality, we're using a phrase that speaks of the greatness of Almighty God. Isaiah 55, we know these words very well. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So heaven represents, brethren and sisters, the difference between God and us. We're not in heaven. Man thinks it's so great that he's gone to the moon and he's planning now to go to the Mars. He's only, to Mars. He's only just scratched the surface of what is out there and God is in control of all of that, brethren and sisters. And somewhere out beyond where our telescopes can ever see dwells Almighty God, the heaven of the heavens. And this one, brethren and sisters, in Psalm 104. Bless Yahweh, O my soul. O Yahweh, my God, thou art very great. Thou art clothed with honour and majesty, who coverest thyself with light as with a garment, and who stretches out the heavens like a curtain. 
And again we're being told really, brethren and sisters, that, that Yahweh is beyond the heavens. The heavens are below him and they are stretched out before him. And in fact that's what the psalm that we read today is all about and we'll make a comment on that when we come to it. But there in that psalm today we read that God has to actually bend down to see the heavens. He has to bend down to see the heavens, leave alone the earth. That's how far above what we term as the heavens he actually is. How beautiful, brethren and sisters, does that highlight this term in heaven and hallowed be thy name. Those of us who have done any study, brethren and sisters, of the name and titles of the deity, I think this is probably one of our favourite subjects because we've looked into that wonderful subject that we have been introduced in, into, particularly through Brother Thomas, of the greatness of the name of Yahweh. But let me say at the outset, brethren and sisters, that this word hallowed has two aspects to it. Obviously it means we have to know and understand the name, but beyond that, brethren and sisters, we have to revere that name. It's not simply we can talk about or boast that we understand or quote scriptures to show what it means. It has to be part of our life, as we've already seen in the earlier quotation. It's got to be part of our character. That's what hallowing the name is. You show no respect, brethren and sisters, to a name if you won't use it. And you often hear the phrase of between somebody, hopefully not in the truth, where there's been friction and I won't even mention his name. What that means is they have no respect for that person whatsoever. Hallowed is exactly the opposite. We are proud to use it, brethren and sisters, and to understand it. That's all conjured up in this term, hallowed be thy name. Brother Thomas says concerning the word hallowed in Elpis Israel uh, chapter 1, very early in the piece, when dealing with the creation, he says concerning the Sabbath day, remember the Sabbath day, he blessed it and hallowed it. And he says this concerning hallowing. A day is blessed because of what it is or will be imparted to those who are command, commanded to observe it. The sanctification of the day implies the setting of it apart that it might be kept in some way different from other days. Now that applies beautifully, brethren and sisters, doesn't it? To the name of God. The same thing applies. The name of God is blessed and we are called upon to bless his holy name. A name is blessed because of what is or will be imparted to those come up who are commanded to know the name. Not keep it because that was a reference to the Sabbath day. But it has a blessing for those who know the name as we're going to see. Also the sanctification of the name implies a setting of it apart that it might be revered in some way different to other names. So the words of Brother Thomas in Elpis Israel fit beautifully to the subject we're dealing with. Hallowed be thy name. Hallowing and blessing, brethren and sisters, are terms, as Brother Thomas says, uh, that refer to firstly something of which will be imparted to those who keep it, and also, of course, a setting aside of something in sanctification. And so we have scriptures, the scriptures which actually endorse that. Exodus 3 and verse 15, God said moreover unto Moses, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, Yahweh, God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, hath sent me unto you. 
this is my name forever and this is my memorial unto all generations. Almost, brethren and sisters, the identical words that are used in the Old Testament of the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day was to be blessed and hallowed and later Israel is told that it was to be a memorial for all generations. That is why, brethren and sisters, we're not Sabbath day keepers in the sense of the church that bears that name. But we are Sabbath day keepers. We are people who understand what that Sabbath represents and we try and apply it in our life. So important is the term Sabbath in Scripture as is the name of God. The what's CEB? Something, Contemporary English Bible. The, obviously I quote from it very often. The Contemporary English Bible says, This is my name forever and this is the name that people must use from now on. How beautiful is that? Now that's a command of course to, to Israel and to the saints, not to the world. In fact, one of the things, brethren and sisters, that we often talk about in the name is the ignorance of it by other religions. And we can thank God for that, for that ignorance. Because would you like to have someone come to your door and say, I'm Yahweh's witnesses? I wouldn't. For the fact they say they're Jehovah's witnesses, they immediately make that distinction. They don't understand the truth. And they use the word Jehovah. They use the other words of Lord and God and so forth. Very few understand or use the, the title of Almighty God, the name of, rather of Almighty God or his titles for that matter. But it's for the saints of God that they, because they hallow it, they might know it. Now that gap there means I move in my electronics here and go across to this one. And if everything goes right. There we are. Okay, we know those, those quotations. The top one we all know very well from Brother Thomas in, uh, in 1858 where we get the word God manifestation from. It becomes part of Christadelphian vocabulary because of the words of Brother Thomas. Just an interesting point that it was the brother of Brian Wilson who wrote the Diaglot. You remember Brian Wilson wrote the Diaglot and was associated with Christadelphians originally but then moved away and I think he started a religion called Children of the Abrahamic Faith or something like that. But his brother asked, asked Brother Thomas the question, he said, are we not a disadvantaged generation? Because in the Old Testament times and in the New Testament times there were people who had the Holy Spirit and there were God-guided and gifted people who could lead the ecclesia. We haven't got them today. Are we not therefore disadvantaged? And that's where Brother Thomas says that's got nothing to do with it. That's got nothing to do with the subject because he goes on of course to say that the men, men were not ushered into being for the purpose of being saved or lost. God manifestation, not human salvation, was the grand purpose of the eternal spirit. And what that means in simple terms, brothers and sisters, is that we try and manifest God. I recently had a brother who, who tends to get very annoyed with the overuse of the word God manifestation and he said to me, his actual words were, Graham, I get sick and tired of hearing that phrase God manifestation. People who use that believe if you manifest God, God has to save you. I said to him, you know, that is exactly opposite to God manifestation. God manifestation is we will manifest God whether we get a reward or not because we appreciate godliness and we live it because it is godly. That's God manifestation. 
In fact, the alternative of that, brethren and sisters, is to basically say to God, well, if you give me a kingdom and life eternal, I'll serve you. But God manifestation says we will serve you because we appreciate the principles and we want men and women to live those principles. And of course that person will be blessed. But that's not the aim of them doing it, brethren and sisters. In fact, the other is like children. You could use children's example. What a difference there is between the child that comes to you and says, uh, Grandpa, um, I see the back lawn, which we haven't got, needs mowing. Um, I'll do it for you. Or the one that comes in, and you go to them and you say, look, would you mow the lawn? He says, yeah, what will I get for it? Um, you know, how much will you pay me to do the lawn? But that really is the difference between God manifestation, brethren and sisters, and harping continually, like the church does, upon God did it for me. Christ died for me as the motivation. The motivation has to be God manifestation. Now, Brother Robert Roberts in the Diary of the Voyage says, the death of Christ has more to do with the exaltation of God than the salvation of man. Most men take in the latter more easily than the former and get astray through the power of mere humanism, which while admissible and beautiful as between man and man, is odious when brought between God and man. That, brethren and sisters, is the difference between God manifestation. And that is why, as we'll see in a moment, there are brethren who have appreciated that point of how great that subject is. And while we've got this old-fashioned machine on, let's just have a look at a couple of transparencies that I've got here in regard to the name, which I was simply going to quote, but this way you can read it for yourself. We go back into Exodus chapter 34, Exodus chapter 4 rather, and Exodus 34, and of course we have the name of God in chapter 4 given to Moses. I will be whom I will be, translated as I am that I am. Before we're too critical of that, brethren and sisters, the Hebrew word doubles for both, depending of course uh, on what tense it is used. It can mean I am as much as I will be. And quite frankly, in the case of God, it means both. He is what he is and he will be what he will be. But of course we use it in the future tense particularly. And so we read this, this and I'm not sure which, where this came Oh, this came out of uh, Raphaim translation. Out of over 40 other occurrences of the first person singular, that's the word aya, I will be, um, the, uh, in such a grammatical position as to make it allowable to be compared with this verse, there is only one instance of aya being rendered I am in the AB. So in other words, out of 40, only another one occasion is it translated I am. We have I will be 27 times and the remaining occurrences represented by will I be, I shall be and though I be, etc. So it is in that future tense and therefore it does point forward to the future. And those of us that have, as I'm sure everyone here has done something of a, a look at the name and again I think that we're aware of these facts but we reiterate them again because they are important. Um, gone off the screen but the Hebrew word Yahweh this is, is from the Illustrated Bible Dictionary. It's amazing what you get brethren and sisters out of Bible dictionaries and, and Rotherham translation and so forth regarding this name. In fact, brethren and sisters, it's amazing what you get from people who are opposed to it even. Because, oh, we'll perhaps we'll leave that for later, but there's a, a comment in the, in the um, NIV Bible concerning why they don't use the V and thou. And it's a very good reason as to why we should use it. 
But we'll come to that when we, when we uh, get to that place. The Hebrew word Yahweh is in the authorised version usually translated the Yahweh, note the capitals, and sometimes Jehovah. The latter name originated as follows. The original Hebrew text was not vocalised in the time of the tetragrammaton. In other words, it was just letters without vowel sounds. And so he says it was considered too sacred to pronounce and they preferred to leave it that way. You know, so reverent is Israel and still in a sense to the name that that is why the Jews, if those of you have been to, to Jerusalem and the Wailing Wall and the Jews continually do that while they're praying. It's not because they learnt to pray on a camel. It's because they actually are giving reverence to God and lest they utter his name or refer to him without bowing in reverence, they do it all the time. That way they won't be caught out. It's typical, of course, of the Jewish overuse of something, but that's why they do it, because they have always reverenced that name. But they came up with this other name, which eventually has come through to us as Jehovah, this way, because it said they put it, the word uh, Danae, my Lord, was substituted in reading and the vowels of this word were combined with the consonants of Yahweh to give Jehovah. A form first attested to at the start of the 12th century, the name is certainly connected with the Hebrew Haya, that is to be, or rather with a variant and earlier form of the root Hawah. And so they say there is actually a connection with the word Jehovah in the sense that that those who coined the name Jehovah realised it had to do with the word Ayah. But it still, brethren and sisters, is a, is a, a hybrid word. And again, we can't do better than to quote from the uh, hand translation. <coughs> Where in regard to the use of the name, they say, uh, what have I done? Gone back one. See if it works. A little bit of them previous. Not going to. Alright. You can't read that over the top of that, can you? Alright. Forward one. Is that the one before it went black, is it? That is, too. No, it's not. This is the one after, so it won't help me. No. Uh, You're right. You're right. Okay. Uh, this is from the Rotherham translation. The reason that Jehovah is not accepted, as far as that translation is concerned, is that it's too heavily burdened with merited critical condemnation as modern, a compromise, a mongrel word, hybrid, fantastic and monstrous. They're some of the terms that were used of writers back in the early 1800s regarding the term Jehovah. The facts have only to be known to justify this verdict and to vindicate the propriety of not employing it in a new and independent translation erroneously written and pronounced Jehovah, which is merely a combination of the sacred tetragrammaton and the vowels of the Hebrew word for Lord, substituted by the Jews for JHVH because they shrank from pronouncing the name owing to an old misconception of the two passages in Exodus 20 and Leviticus 24 about uh, not calling on the name of God in vain. To give the name JHVH the vowels of the word Lord Hebrew Adonai and pronounce it Jehovah is about as a hybrid combination as to spell the name Germany with the vowels of the name Portugal and you come up with the word Gumuza, uh, Gumuna. The monstrous combination Jehovah is not older than about 1520 and from this we may gather that the Jewish scribes are not responsible for the hybrid uh, combination. 
And so we've got these comments which are made so clearly concerning the name of God and to use it. And Rotherham goes on in regards to use of the name in his translation and says, is it too much to assume uh, that the name has about it something very grand or very gracious uh, or at least something very mysterious? Whichever conclusion is, what way do we put in there? The question arises whether there is not something essentially presumptuous, however, little intended, in substituting it for one of the commonest of titles, being that there are on earth lords many, and the master of the humblest slave has his lord. There is surely nothing very grand or gracious or mysterious in that. It is therefore the most natural presumption that the suppression of the name has entailed upon the reader and especially upon the hearer in irreparable loss. So he goes on to say why it is in the translation they use the name. Now brethren and sisters I had a very very clear illustration of that recently when I was in the Solomon Islands when uh, the islanders there have a pigeon bible which we try and wean them off to the authorised version and um, I was in a group where I had actually been dealing with the name of God and godliness and we came to the verse, Thou art the son of Christ, the Son of the living God, the declaration of Peter. And I said to one of the, uh, uh, one of the uh, Solomon Islanders who had a, uh, a um, pigeon Bible, look, will you read that verse for me? And it comes out, it comes out in the words, Him be picking any belong big man. Now you can imagine what respect, what reverence can come from a term like that. The big man in, in, in pigeon refers to your father, refers to the shopkeeper down the corner, your boss at work, and that's the name they give to God. And that's exactly the point that Rotherham is making. And so he clearly says that God deserves better. Now, now got, uh, Brother Thomas actually took a very similar tack, didn't he, in, in Eureka, where he points out that even the word God is not sufficient for the God that we worship. And he goes to great lengths to show us why he uses the word deity. Because God is just the old English word good. What's that? Oh. Um, yeah, God is just the old English word good. And God is much more than good. And he felt it was insufficient to merely call him God. So he used the word deity right the way through his writings for that reason because to him that meant much more. And that's the sort of reverence, brethren and sisters, we should have for the one that we worship. Now, in um, uh, a biography, autobiography of Brother Thomas by Brother Islip Collier, which isn't readily available because he wrote a, a, um, a biography of Brother Thomas but never really put it in print because Brother Robert Roberts's copy was and Brother Isaac Collier didn't want to, uh, uh, to affect that. So it came out in, in serial form through one of the magazines which when put together is a beautiful summary of Brother Thomas's life and brings out a lot, a lot of different points that Brother Robert Roberts does. But the conclusion of the book, this is what he says, or conclusion of his words, Both in Eureka and Phanerosis, Dr Thomas wrote much about the name Yahweh. To study the word aright introduces us to the subject of God manifestation, the scripture teaching concerning which which many have misunderstood. Some people, 
with nothing better than a vague notion as to what Brother Thomas's writings on this subject really amount to, have adjudged him in error on some points. And most frequently a little examination has shown that the points of difference have involved a difficult criticism of an invest- or an investigation of matters beyond the compass of those who have not seen their way to be content with dealing with things which are within their reach. Others, however, convinced of the impregnability of Dr Thomas's position have been thankful for the plainly expressed results of his labour and study and grateful to the light he shed upon the doctrine of God manifestation in its many revealed phases and this notwithstanding their individual ability, inability rather, to follow him in every stage of his reasoning owing to their own lack of the qualifications necessary to support them in an adventure on the field of biblical criticism. It will be patent to any reader of Dr Thomas's work that he did not find his problems readily worked out. Neither were the difficulties he encountered already solved and only waiting to be rehashed up. It is clear to anyone having only a slight acquaintance with the current and recent literature upon the subject dealt with by the doctor that hard study and careful investigation were required before he could, in the lucid way he did, open up the scriptures to inquirers after the way of life, bringing to bear upon the subject of God manifestation a knowledge of the revealed purpose of the deity and he is well equipped for this task of examining both the Old and New Testaments. And he goes on actually, and I thought I had it on there, but his concluding words say that if anyone has looked into this subject on their own, they will come to understand that without this subject being explained to them, we would never have moved ahead at all. So he says the truth would never have survived if Brother Thomas had not been interested and had delved into the subject of God manifestation. And of course that's the, uh, the uh, diagram which he gave to illustrate that and it really fits in with our studies because we haven't got time to go through it but of course the study deals with uh, the terms mainly from uh, Eureka in the early section where you have God before, the deity before manifestation when he was on his own the deity in manifestation through Christ and then the deity in the multitude of the saints. And it beautifully illustrates the, the progression of this term of God manifestation. Now in that psalm, brethren and sisters, and we can turn to it, Psalm 113 that we read here this afternoon, we have a, um, uh, a glorious psalm that deals with the subject and again is so close so akin to the words of the the Lord's Prayer. And as we go through those verses, we find, brethren and sisters, that, and we have them there on the board, Praise ye Yahweh, praise, praise, O ye servants of Yahweh, praise the name of Yahweh. Bless the name of Yahweh upon this time forth and forevermore. And he says, From the rising of the sun until the going down of the same thereof. Now he's talking about, brothers and sisters, in those two terms, the rising of the sun to the going down. He's of course talking in terms of the, the um, uh, full day, the full day being given to God. He should be on our lips at all times, brothers and sisters. It's really, pick your finger, finger in there, but of course Israel were taught that back in Deuteronomy 6, particularly in regard to the name. If you come to Deuteronomy chapter 6, we have the instruction of parents to children in regard to the worship of Yahweh and the loving of his name. And from verse 5 of Deuteronomy 6, 
Thou shalt love Yahweh thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul and with all thy might and these words which I command thee this day shall be in thy heart. Now note this, thou shalt teach them to diligently to their children. So first of all, the children had to have respect for the name. We do that in our families. For instance, we may not let them as youngsters use the name. I sometimes feel that's a bit inappropriate for young children who don't understand it. However, we educate them. And so they had to learn, teach the children diligently. They had to learn that respect for Almighty God. And thou shalt talk with them when thou sittest in thine house and when thou walkest by the way. It's not just in the house, brothers and sisters. It's wherever we go, we talk to those children. And the opportunities, of course, are numerous when we're out with our children to comment on the things that are around us, whether it be nature, whether it be the antics of the world around us or whatever, but we can draw their attention to the greatness of God. And so both in and out of the home, we are to teach them. When thou liest down, so at the conclusion of the day, before we drop off to sleep, our mind and our children's mind should be upon God. When thou liest down and when thou risest up. And there's the point, that while we're awake, and the psalm puts it the other way, that when we wake up until we go to sleep, that our mind is to be upon God. In verse 8, They shall bind them upon thy, bind them upon thy hand, so it's to be in all our actions that we do. It is to be as frontless to our eyes, so it's to be in all the thoughts which we think every day. Uh, you shall write them upon the posts of thy house, so privately you consider them in the house, because on the door of the house, of course, was a reference to the phylacteries, which in an Israel house in Israel were on the inside doorpost. So immediately when you were going out of that house or you went to the door, you read the phylacteries to remind you of the greatness of Almighty God. So you've got the fact that in your privacy of that home there is the respect for God and on thy gates is when we go out. When you go out through the gates into the public, again you take with you that name and the reverence for God. And so Israel were taught very clearly there in Deuteronomy 6 what we have paraphrased for us in Psalm 113. It is to be our thoughts all day from the going of the sun, going from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same. Now, if you are aware scripturally of that phrase, you'll know that it has a twofold aspect because it's talking of the east and the west in the Hebrew, and so they would use that term either referring to a day or to a direction, or it could be people. And of course, the the terms the the uh, the east is a reference to the nation of Israel. And the West is used in scripture of a nation, of a reference to the nations. And so all peoples of the earth are to be affected eventually by that name, which we'll see in the Lord's Prayer. Verse 6 goes on to say, Who humbleth himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in earth. Now that word humbleth is what I was hinting at. It's a word which means literally to bend down. And in fact, Jerusalem translates it, Jerusalem Bible translates it, he needs to stoop to see the sky and the earth. Can you imagine someone who has to actually stoop down to see the sky? Not just the earth, but he has to stoop to even see the sky, the greatness of Almighty God. He raiseth up the poor out of the dust and he lifts up the needy out of the dunghill. And we're going to see, brethren, just as that comes out in those latter, latter words of the, of the prayer that he might rescue us from those problems which we find ourselves in. 
It's just interesting that where it says in verse 7 that uh, he is to rescue the needy out of the dunghill, the identification with needy and dunghill was that the homeless always congregated around the dunghill because it gave off heat. And so in the coldness of the night, the only place where they could be warm, they were homeless, was to congregate around the dung heap. So it really is talking of the poor of the earth and they're the ones that are going to be blessed and they, that he may set them with the princes and with the princes of his people. And there, of course, is the wonderful elevation of Revelation 5.10. We shall be made kings and priests and to rule with him. And finally ends with, He maketh the barren woman to keep house and to be a joyful mother of children. And of course that is a harping on the words which are later picked up in the prophets that Jerusalem is mentioned as a mother who has children. We are the children of Jerusalem. And we're going to see that again, brethren and sisters, comes out very beautifully later on as we consider uh, this prayer. So we move down very quickly in regard to the Lord's Prayer. The name itself, brethren and sisters, we can't look up these quotations. You can get them from me later if you like. In fact, we can probably... Uh, because of this uh, electronic business, we could probably run off some copies of the overheads for you. But we look at the name and we find in, in Proverbs 18 it's a strong tower into which the righteous will run. We find it's a protection in Psalm 124. The name is a protection. It's a heritage in Psalm 61. It's a source of confidence in Psalm 9 that the, that the saints can place confidence in the name. It's a means of elevation as we're lifted to that name. We are called upon in Malachi 1 to definitely not despise the name but to exalt the name in Psalm 34. We are to extol the name, to praise the name. We are to remember the name in Psalm 20. And each of these specifically use the word name. They specifically say we are to remember the name. We are to fear the name of Yahweh. So we fear that name in the sense of reverence. We praise that name in Psalm 113. We love that name. We bless the name. We know the name in Isaiah 52. We publish the name. It's up to us, brethren and sisters, not the name in the sense, of course, of going around and introducing people to the meaning of the name, but, of course, through the manifestation of that in our lives, we publish it to others. And when people want to know why we're different, we say because we try to manifest the characteristics of God. And of course we are to pray in that name. And that brings us of course back to the prayer because that prayer is to our Father which art in heaven. Now that name, brethren and sisters, as we said, is to be lived. Exodus 34 is one of those examples where Yahweh, Yahweh Ael, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, sorry, Yahweh Elohim, and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and fourth generation. When we manifest the name, brothers and sisters, we manifest those characteristics. In fact, of course, it's put by the Apostle Paul, isn't it? Behold the goodness and the severity of God, harping back to Exodus 34. That is to be, uh, in a, that is to be um, manifested in our, uh, in our life. Let's look up, brothers and sisters, these couple of quotations. Acts uh, chapter 15 and verse 4. We know these quotes very well. 
But they are so beautiful, brethren and sisters, when we consider them in the context of what we are tonight as the, the uh, sorry, that should be 14, shouldn't it? Acts 15 and verse 14. Simeon hath declared how at the first God did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. How can you be taken out, brethren and sisters, for to bear a name if you don't know what the name is? Some, you know, brethren and sisters, in their respect for Yahweh, say to me, look, I can't use that name because he is my father. And we don't use a father's first name. And therefore it's disrespectful to use his name. Now, if, in normal circumstances, we would say that's right. But the point is that if our father asked us to use his name, then it is disrespectful not to. And we have a father who has told us to use his name. And therefore to not use it, even though we say it might be in reverence, we are disobeying what he has asked us to do. And so he has asked us to use that name. And it's interesting that for those who believe that Father is his name, it's not used anywhere else in the New Testament of the Apostles' prayers. The Apostles don't pray to Father. They are pray to the Lord in heaven. If it had to be in the terms of the Lord Jesus Christ that they had to use the term Father, then they, of course, were disobeying it as well. So we need to put these things into their context. But we are being called out, brothers and sisters, for that name. Now, alongside that, brothers and sisters, you can just put a couple of other chapters of, uh, of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, 1 and 2 actually, but Acts chapter 2 and verse 21 firstly, which is another well-known quotation here, where we have on the day of Pentecost, where we read in verse 21, it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That word call on, or the two words call on, is one word in the Greek and it's the word surnamed. Surnamed, or we'd probably use the word nickname sometimes today, but to be surnamed. So whoever, whosoever is, is surnamed by the name of Yahweh. It's actually translated, interestingly enough, as surname back in chapter 1, verse 23, on the same page. In fact, I do a very easy style of Bible marking and I've just got a line straight across my page linking the two words. And in chapter 23, they appointed two, Joseph called Barsabas, who was surnamed. That's the same word call on in chapter 2. Surnamed Justice and Matthias. Why was he surnamed the Just One? Because of the characteristics of the man. You don't call someone, you don't surname them Justice they don't surname me Baldy because I've got lots of hair. They use a name that describes a characteristic of a person. And so it is when we come, brothers and sisters, to talking of being surnamed by the name of Yahweh. We have to take on the characteristics of that name. So, brothers and sisters, we have learned that when we talk of our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, there is a lot for us to consider in those words. When we come back together tonight, we will continue with the prayer as we consider the next two phrases, Thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven.